Part One, Chapter Two, of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prompter's Bell. No parting ever seems really sadder than that of college mates. The feelings are then so fresh, the intuition so unbiased, the imagination so vigorous, and the flush of youth so vivid in its joys and sorrow. The world is a beautiful unknown land, and standing on the threshold of life, not even Prince Fomoras of the Arabian Nights had brighter visions. Sorrows, then, no matter how they may dwarf into insignificance in after years, have a bitterness peculiarly their own. There exists no room for cynicism, doubt, or distrust in that golden age when every woman is an angel. Every eye that looks into ours seems honest, and every man's word his bond. And so, many faces that morning were turned aside to conceal the trembling lip, to hide the tear ready to fall. Those young faces, they return oftentimes to memory as I knew them in the old happy careless time, hopeful, ardent, aglow with youth's enthusiasm, joyous with springtide anticipations, reflecting faithfully every sudden impulse of the heart. How the life faded from them on battlefields and in hospitals. Alexandria is an old, we may even call it ancient, town on the northern border of Virginia, but six miles from the national capital. To a stranger it has all the quiet sleepiness, the deep repose of some old cathedral town in Europe. Named for the family of Alexanders, owners of its land full three-quarters of a century before General Washington was born, its streets laid out and named in its old English royal style, the while that worthy gentleman walked there a mere stripling. We may yield it the attributes of honorable old age, pregnant with memories, and say it has earned the right to rest. Its proximity to the capital of the United States— whose incessant stir and pulsing life might have infused something of activity into its sluggish veins, has only served to lull it into deeper repose. It stands aloof with the exclusiveness of the old regime, and virtually says to the newcomer, Keep to your side of the river, and I will keep to mine. At the breaking out of the war, though the heart of loyalty beat so near, Alexandria was decidedly southern. Washington organs spoke of it as a hotbed of treason. Hence it woke unto sudden life and prepared for strife with an impetuously defying restraint. Political questions of the hour seethed and bubbled in a very maelstrom of excitement. The streets became in appearance those of a fortified city. Nearly every man wore a uniform. The rattle of the drum, the scream of the fife, was heard day and night. Soldiers everywhere were in squads, companies, and battalions, drilling, marching, counter-marching, and parading. Hotels were crowded. In the lobbies, people were discussing in ever-shifting groups the latest news. The glitter of the bayonets, the thousand rumors flying from mouth to mouth, the inflammatory appeals of the newspapers, all conspired to keep up the abnormal enthusiasm to the highest tension. At night, huge bonfires blazed casting a lurid glare upon the assemblage of human faces flushing with excitement or paling with emotion as rival orators on hastily constructed platforms with vehement gestures and loud voices discanted on the merits of union or disunion no one could remain calm even little children caught the infection and discussed secession business was in a great measure suspended all were on the qui vive for the latest news Crowds hung around the newspaper and telegraph offices all day. 
the reliable man was in his glory, and could be encountered at every corner, leaning generally against a lamp-post and surrounded by an eager audience. He always knew more than anyone else, and could tell to the minute just what was going to happen. A wonderful fellow is our reliable man. Alexandria was at first a conservative city, and at the commencement sent a delegate to the convention instructed to vote against secession. Party feeling ran high, while each side stood firm to his convictions. Young men in general were in favor of seceding. The older and more cautious espoused as earnestly adherence to the Union. The women and preachers, it is needless to say, were all disunionists. As each day went by, one party grew stronger, and it was not long before the advocates of secession had everything their own way. Those opposed were taunted as submissionists, cowards, and traitors, epithets which induced many to join the now ever-increasing throng bent on overt measures. The Alexandria Gazette espoused the cause of the Union, and under its worthy editor, Mr. Edgar Snowden, Sr., counseled moderation. The secession organ was the Sentinel, edited by Mr. Smith, a forcible writer and an able manager. This paper was admirably suited to stir up and keep alive popular sentiment. It was described as red-hot. Its sensational telegrams and reports were read twenty hours out of the twenty-four by a surging, struggling crowd around the bulletin board. The Sentinel performed its duty well. Its printing presses ran day and night. Fresh dispatches were posted up on the board every half hour, and heralded with large capital letters such as, The work goes gloriously on. Fort Pickens to be attacked tonight. Thirty thousand stands of arms captured at Montgomery, etc., etc., etc. Inflammatory appeals calculated to arouse men to frenzy were also blazoned on this board. Arm, Virginians, the crisis is upon you. There is no union but the Union of the North against the Union of the South. Which will you choose? Arm, arm, arm. The Long Bridge will be crossed tomorrow, and Virginia's sacred soil invaded by the enemy. Virginians, defend your homes against the hirelings of Lincoln. Even the ignorant street Arabs and little gutter snipes went about the streets singing, A red cockade and a rusty gun makes them Yankees run like fun. Hot eager eyes scanned these utterances. Swift and ready tongues repeated them, while embellishments were not wanting to fan the rising flame. Madness? Yes. It seems as if nothing short of insanity could so inflame the people. It was like the wildest kind of emotional insanity, too universal to make it seem strange. No one stopped to reason, and no one suggested failure. It is no wonder, then, that the work of volunteering rushed forward. All were accepted, sick or well, half-blind, deaf or crippled. It mattered not. They were enrolled at once, enlisting for one year. Toil-worn farmers and schoolboys, gray-haired merchants who had spent their lives behind their desks, and their dapper young clerks, pale-faced students, and brawny blacksmiths, the gentlemen of means and elegant leisure, and the hard-working mechanic, all stood shoulder to shoulder in the ranks, forming a contrast that might have caused a smile if every one had been in less deadly earnest. Five full infantry companies, one cavalry, and one artillery, were organized in a short time in this small city. The latter was commanded by Del Kemper, a born artilleryman. In his company were found principally roughs and fancy men, in all as desperate and reckless a set of fellows as one would care to meet. It was Kemper who delayed until night the Federal advance in their first attempt on Manassas. 
thus gaining two hours when every second was precious. It was Kemper who brought the German General Schenk to untimely grief when he made his virginal scout in a train of cars, an original move in tactics, to say the least. The infantry formed the nucleus of the 17th Virginia Regiment. Its first company was the Alexandria Riflemen, an organization dating back many years and the pride of the city. It was composed of the elite of the place, and commanded by Captain Morton Mayer, a natural military genius, albeit a martinet by nature, under whose efficient instructions the company became, with probably the single exception of the Richmond Greys, the best drilled and most proficient in the state. Not only were its men taught in the evolutions of the line, but also in skirmish drill. This command was armed with the Mississippi rifle. The second company composing the 17th was the Old Dominion Rifles, a hundred strong, made up chiefly of clerks and young merchants, with a sprinkling here and there of well-to-do shopkeepers. This was commanded by Captain Arthur Herbert, a fine disciplinarian and a splendid type of the southern soldier. He had an able second in Lieutenant William H. Fowle, who a year later commanded the company all through the war, and led his command in many a hard-fought battle. Captain Fowle was nicknamed the Gamecock, and well he deserved the title. The Mount Vernon guards were composed mainly of elderly men, small tradesmen and mechanics, and commanded by a certain Devon. The material of the two remaining companies were Irishmen. Later the regiment was filled up with companies from the country, the plains, and the mountains. To sum up all within the ranks of this same 17th, we find the city-bred. Farmers, used to handling arms from childhood. Men from the mountains. Country gentlemen, proud of race and lineage, and the sons of old Aaron. We may not wonder, then, that this 17th, with such material, gained laurels all its own, winning and wearing proudly its hardly earned guerdon. End of Part 1, Chapter 2